Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Catch Caught podcast. This week, we have the lovely Courtney from Hips and Haws Wildcrafts, and she is here to talk to us about her love of nature and her work um, across Ireland. So how are you today, Courtney? Uh, very well, thank you. It's lovely to be here with you. Thank we finally made it happen. So lots of um, planning this over a very long time. I'm delighted to be here with you now, finally. Yay, super stuff. And we got you in the height of the mushroom season, huh? <laughs> you did. You did. Oh, that's maybe the end. It's a funny year for mushroom season. So it was an early start and then kept thinking it's going to start any moment. But now it's nearly finished. So it's it's been a funny year for mushrooms. Mm. Um, and what kind of brought your love of mushrooms to you? Like what sparked you? I was always, always interested in in herbal medicine, really. That was the start. And I studied naturopathy when I was about 22 years old in the College of Naturopathic Medicine. So, um, yeah, 24 years ago. And um, always interested in those kind of other alternative healing modalities like acupuncture, herbalism and um, traditional Chinese medicine. So that was always in the background of my interests and, and my practices at home. But... Um, as I, when I did leave Dublin to go live in Wicklow, which was about maybe 13 years ago, 14 years ago, I left my busy Dublin life and felt this much deeper, closer connection to the seasons and and nature. And that wasn't only, didn't have to happen by leaving the city. I think now that that's all around us, wherever we are, even if it's um, different versions in the city but I was really affronted with it a lot closer I suppose as soon as I left Dublin I was um, doing a lot of homesteading I was rearing goats milking them making cheese growing all my own vegetables and had bees as well and really all of those practices as you know really bring you much closer to nature and the seasons and you look forward to what's coming next and you just feel a bit more connected so um as I dedicated myself to more foraging of the wild around me, um, I started bumping into a lot more mushrooms. I had actually I had a Lithuanian friend, Marius, who I'll credit because he came to visit the Christmas tree farm next to where we were living. And he was like, I, you, do you know what this is? You've got porcini mushrooms everywhere. Like, are you telling me you don't know what these are? And I had no idea. And I don't even know how I'd miss them because they're huge. You know, they're really big, chunker, chunky mushrooms and obviously the most highly coveted of wild mushrooms um, on the world market. So uh, I was kind of blown away that I had somehow kind of just overlooked these and had no idea. So from that point onwards, really started um, down the rabbit hole that I've never been able to resurface from happily down in that rabbit hole of fungi. Yeah, yeah. And do you find that as well? Like, I know a lot of my friends from the east of Europe, like this fear that the Irish have isn't really in them. Do you find that? Definitely. Well, that's that's the definition of mycophobia and myco, mycophilia. Um, you often hear references to kind of countries, parts of the world that are mycophobic or mycophilic, and that's mushroom loving or mushroom fearful. And of course, in Ireland, we really did grow 
uh, well, in in much of the West, I suppose, you know, we do kind of usually don't grow up with our parents and our grandparents bringing us foraging every weekend and hunting for mushrooms. Whereas a lot of my Eastern European friends, that would have just been a really natural, normal part of, you know, their time together as a family. So it's such a different perspective to come from. And I think it's a very unwarranted fear, which is why I really love my job now. Um nearly full-time dedicated to bringing people out into the into the wild and helping them break down those fears a healthy fear yes don't ever put anything in your mouth that you don't know what it is whether that's a plant or a mushroom but once once we've got that rule set aside <laughs> then it's pretty safe and so rewarding of a pastime or a lifestyle so i i delight in being able to reconnect people to that and letting them know what's safe and, and what's not so that we don't have unwarranted fears mm. Absolutely. And you took part in the Wild Biome Project as well, didn't you? I did. Yeah, I was one of the 27 participants, um, two of us in Ireland, myself and Lucy O'Hagan. So, yeah, that was life changing. Even if I only participated, there was either there was two cohorts. There was either one month cohort or three month. We were invited to participate in either one or the other. And because I was in Mexico in February visiting my family, I I could join the one month cohort. And it was astounding living off pure wild for this exercise, for this project. Um, they, as you know, they sequenced our gut microbiomes before and after, and they tested our blood sugar and our blood nutrition and our hormones before and after to see how that impacted us. And, you know, even it was astounding for me, even in at the time, one month felt like quite a long time. But, you know, looking back, it's just a blip in your life, isn't it? It's such a... Um, well, quite a, it doesn't seem like such a challenge, but surely even if I eat a lot of wild in my day-to-day life, it's nothing like living on only wild. So um, I felt incredible and it was absolutely life-changing on way more ways than I have the language for. I haven't still unpacked it all because on, on many levels of my being, it it changed me and um, I feel all the better for it. Mm. Wow. And did you find your vitality or energy levels go up? They skyrocketed. And um, I I went cold turkey as well. I didn't ease into it before the pro- project started. I didn't, you know, start cutting out carbs and sugar and caffeine. I just full stop once the day came. That was it. And I expected to feel rough at, at the start. You know, that's a lot to cut out. You know, we even if you just cut out all sugar or or your caffeine and your coffee every day, or your carbohydrates, you might kind of really feel something. So cutting out all of those things at once was quite a shock to the system. But I I, I, um, I did just feel a sense of well-being for the most part. And of course, a new relationship with hunger in my body and kind of a new understanding of how to feed myself maybe more as a machine, because it wasn't like I could think, okay, I'm going to make a carbonara and then I'm going to have a salad and I'll have some dessert. It was like, I needed to have a new understanding of, okay, well, my body needs fats or carbs in order to feel energy, to have the energy I need. And so feeding myself maybe was a new, it was such a new perspective. And yeah, vitality throughout the whole month, I did. I had very few days in which maybe that flagged a bit. And that would be if I, I didn't, wasn't able to look after enough fat or carbs, both of which are less easy to find in the wild in this climate in Ireland in May. So um, I suppose as I 
as I deepened my awareness of what my body needed, um, those were very few moments that I had that I felt less energy. But the vitality stuck with me in a way that I didn't expect. It, it taught me, um, I think that doing such an extreme diet change was a gift because while I've done some elimination diets in my life in the past, trying to get a, a handle on um, health conditions or allergies or sinus problems or, you know, am I intolerant to this or that? I, I've been kind of struggling all my life trying to get a handle on, you know, how come I still had some symptoms that I had? And um, I'd never done an elimination diet that extreme. So when I came back to real, normal, not real food, but normal food, um, my friend Shane from Scale Bakery, like the best sourdough bread you can get in Ireland, <laughs> one of them anyway, he gifted me a huge loaf of sourdough. I was craving it so, so much. And in my in my self-delusions, I had always thought, okay, I know I'm intolerant to dairy, so I'm not even going to consider the wheat's a problem for me. Like that's off the cards. I'm just totally grand with that. It's no chance that that doesn't suit me. But upon coming back to even deliciously sourdough, home bake, you know, delicious baked bread. I had a return of symptoms that I had been struggling with, um, sinus and allergies and catarrh and just this kind of choking sensation upon waking. I had had that for so many years and I kind of always thought, is it my wood-burning stove? Is it like more particulates in the air? Is it my lifestyle? Um, and I had such a clear picture because as soon as I started eating wheat again and maybe I had a little bit of fermented dairy like yogurt, my symptoms were drowning me. And and it was it was wonderful because it was such a clear picture that for me, either I had become extra sensitive through having avoided them, but also that maybe I'm I'm way better without them. So that is, you know, a bit of a pain in the arse. I wasn't very happy to receive that, you know, as a in one sense. And the other sense, I'm delighted because I can retain that level of vitality that I felt during the Wild Biome Project by by being much more careful with what I eat. And it kind of means going back to much more similar lifestyle that I had during the Wild Biome Project and, you know, bringing my food with me, the food that suits me, bringing my picnics and my food everywhere I go and having, having things prepared and being ready. It's not so easy to eat and socialize with friends and just have pizza or pasta and I miss that part, that part, you know, sometimes I fall off the wagon and I do it just for the nice, you know, the beautiful feeling of just enjoying myself with friends and having, you know, whatever is in front of me. But I feel it now. And I know that, um, yeah, the gift of the Wild Biome Project for me was to realize that that I'm way better living in a different, <clears throat> slightly different way like that. Mm. I think there's definitely something to be said <clears throat> for bread slash carbs because, I am like rocket fuel when I've very little carbs and I question it because the minute I have carbs, then I'm like on the couch. I'm like, oh, I need a nap now. Like I go, to, I nearly have to go to bed and I'm like, wait, they're mm. meant to give you energy. I'm like, why am I not getting, why is it taking my energy away? You know? So, I know. And I had to that with my girlfriends over, over many years, you know, kind of gone, okay, I need to go off the bread again. Oh, I feel better when I'm off, off the bread. The you bread. Know, I have a little extra. <laughs> I've, I've got on and off the wagon in my lifetime but I, I also was a bit of denial just thinking you know oh it's just you know but the magnitude of that yeah and I don't know if it's carbs altogether full stop you know nuts and um, oh I'm grand with nuts it's more like yeah exactly pastas it's these processed, or... 
yeah of course really and it's wheat i wonder if it's if it's wheat more than it's the carbs you know we do know even well i mean i would always try to reach for organic etc but when you're out about and you're eating food from here and there it's 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 definitely not the wheat that we should or or the kinds of grains that we should most be eating for our health you know our world has developed this as a major food source that we know is highly um what's the word adulterated and abused and chemicals and you know fertilizers and and roundup and all that stuff so I, I wonder if for you too if it's you know if we're eating bread and it's with wheat or this is this is the nature of the carbs that make us really suffer or notice this decrease in energy you know we might not feel that if we were if we're eating our root vegetables or our nuts and other things that are also carbs so yeah. yeah, I don't know if I want to demonize carbohydrates. Full stop. But I, I'm no, really questioning. No, no. It's the you know, like bread mostly, or mm, like for me, pasta. Like, yeah, me too. Certain things, you know, like when I when mm -hmm. I went to Japan years ago, like I was eating rice every day and fish, and my energy levels were like, oh my god, it's so much fuel. But then when I went. <laughs> Like people might kill me now. When I went to Italy then and it was all like pasta and pizza and linguine and all like I was just like, oh, and then, you know, it was just I I don't know, like I just couldn't handle it, you know. Well, I'm exactly the same. I, I know. I wonder. I mean, maybe we're we're similar to each other. Maybe a lot of people would have this experience if they tried it. But Japanese food is my favorite food in the whole world. That and Thai food. Same. When you're having rice and vegetables and fish as your staples. The times I live like that, I used to spend a fair bit of time in Thailand. I'd go there regularly for work and buy gemstones and things for my jewelry making or buy crafts for my shop that I used to have in Temple Bar. And um, oh, I loved going there. Oh, I loved it. But the food is... Same, if I'm in Italy, I'm kind of drooling over the deliciousness of the way they prepare food. But after I eat it, I'm lying there comatose, bloated, unhappy, tired, exhausted. It was delicious when it went in, but I, I don't feel that vitality afterwards. But Japanese food or that kind of, yeah, rice as my staple and all those other things, they just light me on fire. And I think Coconut rice. it's really great to be able to realize that, isn't it? So to know kind of that we can unlock this vitality through the choices we make, even though it's sometimes a lot easier just to go with the flow and not bother with all that if you kind of really feel if you can re if it does for those who it makes as difference as it does for you and me it, it's it's kind of hard to go back then isn't it mm, definitely yeah and you mentioned you do other crafts as well for anybody listening would you give us an insight yeah I've always been really creative I have oh I just I love to create things and I have all kinds of hobbies, too many hobbies, really. And <laughs> I, 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 I speak out a lot these days, much more publicly about my neurodivergent diagnosis and my ADHD. I used to, you know, think it was rubbish and, you know, just a, just another label and it ties into my creativity and it ties into that question, what crafts do I do? Because it's nice. The reason why the diagnosis was so important to me on many levels was understanding myself through a new lens that wasn't so harsh and self. Um, let's see, what's the word? Um, I'd be quite a harsh judge of myself sometimes, hold myself to very high standards. I suppose there'd be a lot of shame would be the 
the worst part of of kind of having a lot of self-critical thoughts. And so the lens with which now I can be more kind to myself is go, oh gosh, yeah, I can see a thousand examples in my past of things that, you know, are much more eccentric than a lot of people I know. So one of them would be that, you know, I'm not alone in this, but if I'm interested in something, I go so deep and obsessive about it to the expense of all else. And if I have a new hobby, I buy everything that I could ever need to kind of have a new career in that hobby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, but jewelry making was the thing I've done most. And and I had a I had a shop through many years in Temple Bar. Well, I had first a market stall and I went to festivals and markets and eventually got a shop in Temple Bar. And the, what I loved was just such an invitation to be able to spend um all the creativity, all the time for creativity that that I liked, and creating anything I wanted, and just putting it out there into the world. And I, I love, I love upcycled and making unusual new things from something that's otherwise discarded. So one of my favorite jewelry brands, I had five jewelry brands at one stage, but one of them was steampunk jewelry, and I kind of, I never got full, full, full like dressed up in the steampunk gear and went to the parties and stuff I wish I did because I, I love dressing up but um I did I did have a really cool jewelry line kind of making taking apart old broken watches and making mixing them with I don't know making them into 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 brooches or earrings or things but mixing the old watch parts with little animals or um gemstones or pearls and things Swarovski crystals and I just I just loved that but I I I I suppose I do creative things in many ways every day of my life, but now it's a lot more food based, and, and I'm really looking forward to having a workshop again, um, so that I can fully play with all of my other pastimes, you know, silversmithing and, um, oh, just a space to create in, you know, that makes me feel very, um, complete, I suppose, so that would have been a big part of my life that at the moment I'm doing less of I'm living a bit transitionally at the moment so a lot of my things are in storage and um just yearning and dreaming for recreating and and actively I'm 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 creating that I'm I'm looking for a new home and a venue space with which to do my workshops and events and also to have my my own workshop to create in so I'm actively manifesting that right now I have a few kickbacks in in my dreams and plans but every every time I I say the time I say the word manifesting sometimes people have called me up on Instagram you know they've responded to that expression and they're like but what do you mean manifesting are you just you know, it takes hard work and money. Like you can't just bypass those things. And I, and I don't mean that I do, but I think there's a lot of power in, for one, really knowing what you want is the biggest part. If you're able to articulate it or write it down, knowing what you want to that degree that you can have that kind of clarity. And of course, all of the things behind that, you know, whether that's and determination. Saving, saving the money and the determination yeah all the other things it takes to make the things you want happen in the world yeah. so I don't say manifesting like I'm just gonna dream it up and it's gonna happen mm-hmm. and fall on my lap I know I follow through with all the hard work that that needs to but um yeah so I'm manifesting my my dream space in the world again because I've been living in my beautiful bus off and on over the last three years um, after a major life change and um I'm ready There's- for some roots now and yeah yeah and, there, and there's a thing as well, maybe you've read about the law of assumption, 
Like, no. Basically, like, because anything I want, I just get it. And I just do. There's like, there's no question. So if I just <laughs> assume, I know, and I'm really confident in saying it because my brain, I have so much evidence. And like, for anybody listening, like, assuming that you already have it, like, it's a game changer. Like feeling like you already have it. Like, I'm like, I, I already have that. Like, you know, I did that big trip around the world. Like when I was in work in a corporate for a few years, I used to have in my ear like Cuban music, Latin American music. Like I was like, I'm already there. Like, And people would tap me on the shoulder and be like, Kate, how do you do this maths thing? You know, I'd be something about accounts. And I'd be like, sorry. And I'd be like in Cuba in my head. <laughs> so like I was okay, so already I there. Didn't know that- of course. Okay. I did know the theory. I suppose I just don't call it that. But <laughs> every time I've practiced, you know, there was what was the book, um, The Secret, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever way we call it, you know, with the secret of the love assumption. I, I do that practice too. And I'm the same as you. It's a really powerful thing to know. To know that power is within you and to believe it. Every time I every time I do it in the form that I do it in, I kind of have this sentence of, um, yeah, I'm so happy and grateful that I have you know, man, yeah, that I have this beautiful home that I'm living in in Wicklow and that I have this space to bring people to, to create these events and workshops that are very meaningful to them. I, I'm, I'm doing it out loud now on a podcast. So let's see. Yeah, this is oh, my perfect. manifestation now. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'm so happy and grateful that I have this space in which I have my home and I feel secure and I can put down my roots and I can metaphorically and physically you know the roots of all the food and medicine and herbs and plants and trees and all that that I want to grow around me and I have a space that I welcome community and people who want to share experiences and share wisdom and um and a space to be creative in and yeah that is that's the one I'm working on right now as we speak. And it's it's a big one. And I, I kind of did it and I got all those things on my list. I, I achieved it all, but I forgot to say like needs planning permission. So <laughs> yeah, I'm just coming out of a traumatic, perfect home space in Avoca where I am right now. Actually, my bus is parked right here and it had everything on my list of all my Does dreams. Does the bus move? Oh, the bus drives. I had to get a lorry license to drive my bus. Yeah, it was no small, um, no small thing to make happen. Uh, but yeah, my bus moves. It drives, so I can move it out of Avoca to wherever this next place is. And unfortunately, I'm a bit gutted about Avoca falling through. But it was a bit sneaky. It was being sold as if it had planning permission. You can't just magic that or pretend it. So in fact, it doesn't. This place. So um, I need to kind of keep looking till I find somewhere that 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 is the right one for me. But yeah, that's my biggest, my biggest manifestation at the moment that I am um, seeking out. And I like I see you with your bees and, you know, follow you online and, the, you know, growing your food and um, having your space and your beautiful workshops, too. I, I, I know that we have a lot of similarities and all that, but doesn't it feel wonderful when you. Yeah, when you have that space that you can share those those passions and those skills that you've acquired with with others. And there's a lot of people hungry out there to experience those things. So it, it feels so rewarding, doesn't it? I think we both yeah. offer that to the world and it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And it's like, oh, the emotion in it, even like to bring people out and show them things they've never seen or allow them to feel things they've never felt. And one thing I just want to go back on is like what you're actually manifesting um 
it has to be supported. A friend said this to me years ago when I was totally lost. She was like, you will get it. There's no other way because when it serves a greater purpose and a greater vision and humanity and nature, it has to work, you know, because there's more backing behind it than just you, like the people's collective thoughts, you know, it has to work. So it will, you know, but definitely like the space and just I feel honored that like my granddad worked there and his granduncle worked there. My dad has worked there and I've worked there. I am currently. And it's just, it's real emotional for me as well. Like that it was my granddad's place and the century. Home is really powerful, isn't it? And we're not all, I'm so aware, even if, you know, I've been without that in some senses, I also feel fully supported and really connected. And I know that I'm, you know, I'm not homeless, even if I don't feel that sense of home security right now. I'm I'm aware that so many people in Ireland and, and obviously in these days, uh, really current news as we're having this podcast, this this um, devastation and genocide in Gaza has happened and is happening right in front of our eyes. So this sense of home, this sense of security and well-being is, is such a powerful thing. And my heart bleeds for those that are all over the world, you know, even obviously we're not, you know, the, these genocides happens all over the world in Africa and Congo and horrible things happening. It, it is so upsetting to feel a bit helpless watching these things happen in the world. But that, mm. that sense of home, um, that sense of groundedness is a very powerful thing. And, you know, I, I've been in Ireland for, um, let me think my birthday is next week. I'll be 46. And so I came to Ireland when I was about 19. So 27 years in Ireland. And um, you do not look. You were like early 30s. Yeah. Where is your home? Like, where is your original home? So my home is Ireland, really, truly and through and through. But I I was born in Detroit, Michigan. And um, I was not one of those Americans who says, you know, I'm Irish. <laughs> I actually was one of the few that was saying, "Okay, I actually don't think I have any of that blood in in my in my um, you know, I'm not one of those <laughs> Americans." Uh, and I actually usually lie to everyone I can. I, I I I ever since I was about 19, I was in Spain first when I left America. Well, actually, to be really clear, I left my home, my family home, when I was probably. 16. I posted a picture of myself the other day on Instagram. I was such a young, oh, like 16, 15, 16, yeah, like such a young, young little girl. And um, so I left my family home at that age. And then I left my country a couple of years after. So it it wasn't an easy start in life for me. I mean, maybe that suggests that, you know, I'll let you read between the lines. It was not easy in my home life. And and also I didn't feel at home in in America, I did feel this sense of, I want to get out of here. I want to see the world. Mm. Um, I spoke Spanish and I went to South America and then I went to Spain and, um, and I traveled around the world a lot as well, like you did. Um, and I feel so lucky that I made Ireland my home and that I was so welcomed here and I've had so many opportunities, but like, yeah. Okay. So I was just started to say that I lie all the time. I, I, <laughs> I started saying I wasn't American because it's so much easier to not be judged. I don't want to talk about politics or presidents. And if you just say the words, it's so loaded to say that you're from there. And I didn't want that conversation. So I would say Canadian, of course, which is far more uh, PC or I'd make up something else entirely. And every time I'd just say a new country because I didn't want that judgment of being 
put in a box that I didn't feel I belonged in. And yeah, it's a bit of a hang up for me. Sometimes people just think it's a bit silly that I don't like to say where I was born, but but it has a bit of a weight to it. And, and I didn't like that sense of being judged. And I certainly didn't like talking about American presidents in every conversation. So I definitely won't talk about it. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> it's not in my actually area of my brain I just don't have that stuff in there and um, it's taken up with other things you know <laughs> like four-legged four and eight-legged creatures um so for anybody just a little maybe insight in the mushrooms for anybody who's well I know they should go to somebody to learn properly and they can go to you whenever you have a workshop next but is there anything out at the moment that you're seeing about that could spark somebody's eye yeah so um certainly um at the moment I guess what I picked the last couple of days in my garden was wood bluets they're a purpley blue mushroom they're um they're saprophytes so they break down composty leafy material so they're not they're not a mycorrhizal fungi that needs a certain tree that it grows with they kind of um you might find a lot of them this time of year and they can be a little harder to spot because all the leaves have fallen and i think actually i'm watching out there's still maybe 20 to 30 percent of the leaves on the trees but around me in glendalock they're falling fast so it's a lot harder to spot some of the fungi now underneath all that leaf litter mm. but sometimes they look their heads up and they're a bit purpley blue and they're a beautiful one there are lookalikes too so it's it as always important to know really what you've got but yeah not one of my top favorites for edibility or tastiness but i welcome any wild food that um that i find in season when i go for my walk i have a new dog actually she brings me for lots of walks and so even more exposed to kind of yeah picking up a few things here and there as i'm out on my my new uh extra long walks because i have a collie she's loads of energy she's gorgeous her name is reishi and um let's see this morning i also picked a blusher which is amanita rubescence that is yeah amanitas aren't beginner mushrooms to be eaten because they have some of the deadliest mushrooms in their genera and their genus sorry so um but let's see what else is, is out right now that is a bit more safer easy to use there's oysters a lot of oysters popping up gray oyster mushrooms um they're pretty easy to identify and medicinal mushrooms like the birch polypora i see a lot of that at the moment are they of on more the mature polypores i mean sorry are they on more mature birch trees not the young ones yeah they're definitely it could be on a young one but if so that tree is not got long to go so it's active tree parasite it's killing the tree and then also breaking it down so usually i find birch polypore like on dead stumps or trees that have already died but they're still standing or or fallen that's where i find the most birch polypore that one's very easy to identify but then again you know it's as a mushroom instructor it's amazing when you're first beginning what I say could be easy to identify when you're beginning at the very start. It's hard to get your eye in and a lot of things uh, look, you know, it's surprising what people might think looks like a picture. If, you know, when you get your eye into that level of detail of what's required to identify fungi positively, there's so many little details that you're observing. Um, but um, I did a good resource for anyone who's listening is is Mushroom Foraging Ireland, which is a Facebook group. And I started that group about, I think it's only five years ago, 
And it's beautiful because there's almost 18,000 people on it now. So it's become quite a big resource, especially in Ireland. It's it's beautiful to have, well, like a few years ago, there were not that many Irish people interested in, in fungi or mushroom foraging. So it's really exploded. But as far as a resource in Ireland, it's a wonderful, helpful thing to have because you know, you don't want to have books or websites or other um, groups that are across the world. You want to be somewhere local to you. So when people are posting, you know, um, asking for assistance with ID or to verify something they've found, there's a hive mind of of lots of really amazing, um, <laughs> clever uh, mushroom, uh, what's the word? Um experts who volunteer their time there but also yeah it's a great resource to not only verify what you found if you take proper pictures and kind of heed the advice at the pinned post at the top of what you need to kind of look out for and take pictures of but also to just see what's it's in season at the moment what's everyone finding mm. um, so that can be a really helpful place to to continue your studies and and verify always what you're finding before you consider eating something with you know until you know it yourself to a degree of certainty with absolute, you know, you really know that wild food, whatever it is, and you know it yourself inside and out, you need to be always backing up and verifying what you've got with others until until you have that level of certainty yourself. Super. And when do you eat many wild mushrooms? How, what kind again? of do you eat many wild mushrooms? Do you what kind of mushrooms do you like to forage? Um I have been yeah, like I I don't know if they're the basics, but the ones I know of, like the chanterelles and the bolete and um, this the general field mushroom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's good. I mean, a lot of that's people, not the I same as the horse mushrooms and else. That's that's pretty yeah. good start, isn't it? A lot of people the don't amethyst know that. I had recently found that amethyst deceiver. Yeah, yeah, and I was like, whoa, the color. And um, what else? Yeah. I found the Dryad saddle, and it was like, but it was too old. But it was mm-hmm. enormous, and um, the birch polypore as well. Um, but I've had trouble finding it this year at all. I can't. Maybe the trees are too good. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a good start. Yeah, that's great. And what I love about mushroom foraging and, and also foraging for all wild food through the seasons, it's just, it's a never ending hobby. You're never going to get to the end and you go, okay, that's it. I know it all now. For me, the act of foraging for food, whether it's mushrooms or plants or roots or, you know, all the, you know, seaweed or fish or all the things we take nourishment from or we could do around us, wherever we are. I'm never going to know it all. I'm never going to get there. There's so much more to learn. And even something really familiar to me, like a nettle or a dandelion um, or a wood bluet or a sep. There's always a million more ways we could learn to prepare that. Or, you know, um, for me, that's magic. The alchemy of of taking these wild things and to be able to ferment them, to make face creams from them, to make our vinegars or to preserve them in ways that we can use them throughout the year. Um, that the magic of that for me is is so exhilarating. And and it's true alchemy. It's taking one thing that becomes much more, that's something altered, something different, something more than it was before. And um and having it then in a form that's preserved to use through the year, for me, that just gives me never ending joy. So mm. it's a perfect 
perfect hobby. It's it was more than a hobby. It's a lifestyle, but it's um yeah, yeah. What what better thing is there than that? You know, you're never going to um know it all. There's always more to do with it. So yeah, brings me endless joy. And then when you add in products like like you work with so much with the bees, for me, I guess one of the things I've made recently that um that I love so much um was this balm or salve that I made. Um, I made it first this summer when I, I was hosting Ash Ritter. She's an American herbalist from Black Sage Botanicals. And she came over to Ireland and we did a, a workshop together called Forest Medicine. And we decided to, we were both very interested in Flygaric as medicine. And um, we were connecting through that and then decided that we'd create a workshop that brought in everything that's around that, you know, the trees, the hosts that it grows with and kind of a deeper dive with the medicine and food that could be in those trees and the lichens and all the other, maybe St. John's warts growing around the base of those same trees. And we kind of made this beautiful um, salve together called Forest Salve. And it was, it was using Flygaric, which has very potent pain relieving properties when applied externally. Um, also, if taken with proper instruction internally, but for the purpose of most of my work, I work with it externally. Um, and it's so powerful. It's so astounding that when it helps people to the level that it has the potential to do, um, it is, it almost seems like magic. It's hard to teach about without trying to, you know, get taken away with the excitement the potential the people for whom it helps when there's long-term chronic pain and nothing else has helped nothing else shifts it flag eric has the potential and very quickly and with very small amounts of applications of drops externally to affect great change and great relief of pain um i have so many stories and uh, i suppose it was yeah so i like working with that in many ways so that was one of the ingredients in this balm or salve and i was making more this week because i had a few workshops about medicinal mushrooms and and about the flag eric this last week so i was creating more of this balm so it was it was working with flag eric and panther cap which is a relation also in the same family the amanita but it's the same only even more powerful it has all the same chemicals that the flag eric does but even more of the same mm. so um would have a lot of those same properties for pain relief. So we mixed the flag eric and the panther cap in infused into an oil with dried caps. And then um, let's see, I added in some comfrey leaf and comfrey root that I had grown and made an extract from earlier in the year. Um, we used usnia, lichen, um, old man's beard, which has a lot of incredible properties, especially antibacterial, like antifungal type qualities. Um, and so the also, there was a bit of St. John's wort. Um, and really important, there was tree pitch and uh, the bee products. We used some bee propolis, which is essentially the bees collecting the tree resins and tree pitches for me. Um, and and in, their, in their form of the propolis, which is very powerful and potent um, substance. But then also I like to collect the resins myself from trees. So I had a lot of pine pitch. And melting all of that into the balm, into the oil, infusing that into the oil um, and adding some beeswax then to thicken it, or you can use shea butter. But it was, it just made this kind of really powerful for me, like just beautiful synergy of these very powerful plants and fungi and lichens and trees um, into this salve that not only is good for physical pain, um, 
sore muscles or nerve pain, but also then has all those kind of potent antibacterial, antifungal qualities. So for even wounds and and um, fungal infections, um, I've had a lot of feedback. People found it really, really helpful and powerful. So for me, that's just such a joy to be able to kind of have the apothecary of the wild around us and to be able to make that into form, form, form that into um, potent and powerful medicine and sharing that with people. So that was one of my projects this week. Mm. And it seems to be like it's kind of getting out there little by little that we also have these medicinal properties in the mushroom or plants, you know, like because a lot of people you'd hear talk about CBD oil, but it's like when in terms of fungi, it's like it's slowly getting across the minds, the fear mindset, you know, that you can actually use it and you're not going to trip out or something, you know, it's it can help you, you know. Oh, yeah. So I guess, yeah, specifically Flag Eric, I suppose, has such a dark uh, connotation a lot of so much fear but the story's been deep it's been told for a long time it's so dangerous don't even touch it and I, I have a lot of speculation and theories about why that that has been so demonized throughout time in history but it's certainly changing fast and not just through my work I, I mean Ireland's a small country and so I've been giving those workshops about flag air specifically for the last four or five years so I've you know taught many many hundreds of people in my workshops just about that but um and word spreads fast and people use this remedy and they find a great relief so the the word spreads fast in a small country like ireland and i'm not the only one working with flag eric now but it's it's beautiful to see that changing and it's it's something we can all have access to and there's very safe ways to work with it there's no doubt it also contains potent toxins that if not processed properly could cause you some harm that cause you death but they could cause you you know unexpected um yeah shamanic experiences or or you know they may be positive or they may be dark but you know you need to know how to work with things properly and there's a lot of ways to work with this mushroom in particular very safely and i love breaking down those barriers of misinformation and fear because um uh, you, I was listening to your podcast interview with with um, Marina Ross, Marina Kesso the other day, a new one, I think. And she was talking a bit about those witchier plants and witchier fungi. Um, so they can be very powerful, but of course, education is needed. And it's, it's nice to be able to kind of reach to those things that um, have potential for a huge impact and in small, small amounts. But, you know, to learn how to use them safely, I think, is a very powerful thing to have in your at your disposal and in your apothecary yeah definitely and the fly agaric for you what kind of oil what do you use like a carrier oil? do you dry it and grind it up or how are you prepping? no i don't grind it up because they well you could do it's obviously much harder to strain out afterwards um i i didn't grind mine up into powder i dried my fly agaric caps and um sometimes i just use extra virgin olive oil because it's easily accessible and it has a lot of good qualities for your skin and sometimes if i have been making face creams or i have access or i've, I've bought some nicer um, oils i like to use um sweet almond oil or i like to use um let's see yeah those kinds of oils i suppose you know any it doesn't have to be really expensive oils that you can only get from um 
online and that's why that's why i do like reaching for extroversion olive oil something that that a lot of people can access very easily yeah it's, it's a great menstruum for infusing all kinds of herbs into mm-hmm. yeah, that's great and when is your next workshop anybody listening. So nearly done for the season the season for me like since you know I think you, you usually were asking me what I like to have an interview with you on this podcast and I was always excited about doing that but you asked me in mushroom season where really I work so intensely during this these few months that are we only have maybe usually something like September October some of November for peak season and I, I work really hard and really intensely offering lots of workshops and walks and events. So I'm nearly wrapped up for this year, for this season, but I have one more weekend ahead of us, which is the 2nd and 3rd of December. And I'll be teaching during that weekend. One one of the days is flag garrick specific and the other day is medicinal mushrooms in general. And um, they, yeah, I, I've started offering them on the same weekend like that because I've I've realized a lot of people are flying in from other countries now for the workshops which is really a great honor and surprising and sometimes feels like a bit of pressure as I realize people are making such an effort to come from so far it's I feel very grateful for that but um that that way if I offered those events in the same weekend it was a lot easier for people to fly in and do both of them so I have those they'll take place in Blessington County Wicklow and I'll be offering more in 2024 i've got some of my events up and live for wild food foraging and making food and medicine through the seasons so there's some spring greens um events where we kind of identify a lot of wild greens we i feed everyone a feast of wild food things i've made share kind of all the ways that you might work with some of those plants and um we usually go home too with a couple of things we've made in the forest usually or or depending on what venue i'm at um, we might make some herbal vinegars or um yeah usually kind of go home with one or two products that we've made together on that day from something wild also discuss fermentation methods and things like that so yeah I have that coming up in the autumn in the spring sorry and also some coastal foraging and i'll put up my mushroom events for 2024 soon so it's funny to operate a whole year in advance, but the season is so short and the, often things book out. So it's good to book in early if you're able to. And um, also, I just wanted to mention, I always operate with an early bird price plan because during mushroom season, I'm far too busy to be able to kind of have the level of admin that's required. So I like to get everything booked up long in advance. So I offer a substantial discount for booking early. And I, I prefer people get that rather than paying booking last minute and having to pay the full price. So it's it's if you're interested in anything, take a look. And um, yeah, I would love to see you. And also anyone who's listening, it'd be an honor to to meet you in the wild for more of this work together. And could you tell us, because I'm intrigued, about your mushroom hat? <laughs> which which mushroom hat? <gasps> oh, all of them, please. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see me messing? I had that. I was doing a bit of a, a ridiculous photo shoot all by myself in my house a couple of weeks ago because I was hosting Amanita Dreamer over from America. She works obviously a lot with Amanita Muscaria internally, and her life story is fascinating and. Um, I met her last year in Portland, Oregon, when we were both speakers at the Radical Mycology Converts. And I was very honored to host her in Ireland. So we did an event together and um, it was a full weekend. We were teaching about, she was teaching about microdosing and internal use of Amanita muscaria. And then I was doing extra, as a part of the workshop, I was 
dying to get people dressing up a little more. I, I found such joy in making costumes and dressing up mushroomish. And uh, so we made that a part of the event and um, had a bit of a photo shoot at the end. So I was uh, and also also did a beautiful workshop with Kira Sherlock. She's Irish. And we were talking about both the medicine of psilocybin and, and flag Eric. She would be the magic mushroom woman of Ireland and I would be the flag Eric woman of Ireland. I'm I it's been called of me, but I will call myself that too. And uh, <laughs> so for both of those events, we did we did dress up and I created a lot of headpieces, um, which was another way to express my creativity, I suppose. So whether I used antlers and sometimes, you know, oh, the most the most um, amusing addition to my Samhain hat that I made was sounds a bit dark, but I'm sure that you'll get it. I, I love I love all things I can find in nature. So of course there's acorns and there's, you know, dried seaweeds and there's all these things that could be beautiful art. But I found a roadkill, um, jackdaw, a crow. Mm. And this was a few years ago. And I cut off its feet, which sounds really gruesome, but I, they were so beautiful. And I see them used as earrings or different things. And they're a bit macabre, but I had them in my kind of nature altar. And then I, I thought, what better place than for my Samhain top hat that I'd created? And I had all these wow. antlers and dried things on it. And I put in my little jackdaw feet. And I was like, oh, they perfectly, finally somewhere for my jackdaw feet. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm sure a lot of people will squirm and go, oh, my God, what a weirdo. But, you know, I'm just uh, wondering, how did you preserve them or dry them or what did you do? I dried them in salt. I put the the jacked off feet in, in a jar of salt and that dried out all the moisture and preserved them. Mm. Um, I had other beautiful things, not to leave it on that note. I suppose um, things I collected from all over the world or was gifted, I like to, um, I, I, I kind of in this top hat for the Samhain uh, workshop that I did with Kira Sherlock, there was huge interest. It was sold out in like, well, a few hours and then there was hundreds of people on the waiting list. It was such a nice Thing to be a part of something that you know everyone wanted to hear a bit of, of what Kira has to share about psilocybin and and magic mushrooms and and then we created this very creative event too around that so we all put on our our headpieces that we created on the day and um yeah it was a lot of fun I to do it. I like to hear that if anyone's if anyone's keen send me a message because I'd like to hear the world would like more of that I'd like to facilitate more of those kinds of things <laughs> definitely and like yeah like I'm just picturing in my head now like just like a big group of people walking down the road with like all these crazy hats and like you know using everything from nature and like it's just it's exciting isn't it it is it kind of woke up something in me I was I was in the jungle in the rainforest in Ecuador in early 2020 just as the world was ending with COVID and lockdown was full 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 the beginning of the explosion of it all I was deep in the rainforest in the Amazon and on one of our last nights there you know, we, we painted our faces with the native people and we, you know, yeah, we painted our bodies with these berries and this natural paints from, from the wild things in the forest, in the, in the, in the jungle. And, um, we took kind of just had fun. We had such a laugh. We had a big feast that last night and we put music on and we, we ended up playing with 
taking photos of each other in the in the jungle and having like candles and kind of the way that that would light up our face from below and the face paint on and and I'd met these really really wild wild tribes people and you know nearly like I will say they were an uncontactable tribe and it wasn't horrible that we were meeting them it was well it was horrible in one sense because you know you hear all these stories that these uncontacted tribes should obviously in the in the true way of the world they should be absolutely left alone and they should remain uncontacted but where I was in the Yasuni National, next to the Yasuni National Park, it was being deforested at such a rate that they had nowhere else to go. They were absolutely losing everything. This was a part of the rainforest. It was like peeking into the end of the world. It was devastating. I was earlier in a different part that was untouched and pristine and wild and magic. But then this part where we were, where I was studying with this Kurandera teacher of mine that I, I uh, and uh, and where she had a center, it was just this heartbreaking devastation of the end of the world and all of these kind of um, for mining for minerals and also for oil. It was just like the end of the world. So these these tribes people had had met her and come into her center because they just had they lost everything. There was nowhere else for them to go, and so she was kind of letting introducing them to our small group. We were only about. 15 people and in order for them to kind of just get used to interacting with with the world a little bit we got to meet them and it was such an honor and they were so wild and they were it was so magical to meet someone so absolutely connected to what was around them and they brought us into the into the jungle for a walk anyway part of the dressing up was that they were kind of pulling on our bra straps and giggling at us they were like what is this like you know no language that we could speak that was the same with words even though I speak Spanish of course they had their own dialect that was their own but we had such a laugh they were pulling at our bra straps and like what are you doing wearing all this like weird stuff and so they they made me a bra that they had made from all these palm fibers they you know yeah all these raw fiber plant fibers and it was kind of just this thing you'd wear over this side and wear over this side of course it had nothing to do with support or even you know covering yourself up I don't know it was just much more maybe just a tribal beautiful thing to wear and uh and I had my own so I was wearing just that painted my body and just had such a laugh playing with the photos and um there was something that unlocked in me this this wildness and this connection to kind of play being this playful and and also this permission to be a bit savage again mm. and I I remember that experience so deeply, but I remember writing how much I'd love to bring that to Ireland in some way, you know, in, in our way, but a bit more playfulness and a bit more permission to connect to parts inside of us that we don't always access in our busy worlds and lives. So that was underlying, you know, my desire to make headpieces with people or to be creative. There's something about creating a safe space with a group of people in which you can have that playful exploration and a new side of yourself can be opened or there's safety and there's there's something in that that for me is very magical and I'd, I'd like to kind of work with that a bit more. Mm. And it's like reawakening the animal inside because yeah. when you feel that savageness, like for me, it's like oof, the fire that goes through you, you know. Yeah. I was yeah. like, literally before the podcast, I was inside in the river and I was holding my breath underneath and like, when I came out the whole way home, I was like, geez, what was that like? Like every time it's different, but like just a few minutes in the river and like you feel completely new, like your body is even tingling with new, you know, like whatever 
flora fauna it's interacted with and like you just you just become alive again and so many of us are complaining that we're just numb and dead and like we don't feel alive like you know and we're lethargic and it's like yeah things like that putting like or you know yeah. even what's that face paint again um um is it the fuchsia i think the fuchsia was used is it the fuchsia it was used as a paint in ireland and in new zealand i think as well oh is it Fuchsia flowers. Wow, I didn't know about that. I'd love just, to play with it's it. It's just coming to me now, just when you're talking about the paint. Oh, something, yeah. something about the fuchsia and putting it on the face. I think it was used in New Zealand as well a long time ago, but I think I might need to look up that again. Mm, let's find that. We need to yeah, find our pigments that are here from the wild. Yeah, um, let's be animals. And I, maybe I'll mention a book that you might not know yet, but this book is, I like to mention it because we're still in November. Yeah. And, this is a book that has been so moving to me, but the point is you start reading it in November, which is like the Celtic New Year. So it's kind of based on the Celtic calendar. It's called Environmental Arts Therapy. I think that the author's Ian Hedgenworth or Hegginsworth. I don't know how to say his name. Something like that. And Ooh. it has a terrible cover. It's an ugly, awful cover. And I think even the title, EAT, they kind of shorten the environmental arts therapy to EAT. And there's some pictures of some apples. But it kind of, if you looked at the cover only, you might go, ah, I'm not very sold. But mm. look up this book and buy it, please. And what it is for me, what it is, is this kind of connection, like what you just said, that kind of being under the river and, you know, the vitality you feel from that it's it's a beautiful exploration through all the seasons through each month of the year it's kind of different invitations of how to interact with nature or ceremony or ritual and no matter where you are in your life i've shared it with so many people and wherever we're all in different struggles or different kind of things that we're working through but i think everyone feels a commonality in the themes and somehow feels really personal and like it's I don't know. It's it's something I find very, very moving. So I think you might really like it too if you haven't read that book already. Yeah, I'll have a look it up. Thanks so much. Um, and yeah, just a, fi a final note. I'm just curious um, because I see and I hear about the rise in ADHD diagnosis. So mm -hmm. just for anybody listening, you know, because we all question ourselves and who we are and what we are. And like for you, was there any certain symptom or like, how did you come about? With yeah, it? great question. Unfortunately, it's not very, well, I don't have an easy answer for people. A lot of people ask me and I speak out more about it now, like how can they get diagnosed? And in Ireland anyway, even in the UK too, I don't think there's still, uh, there's a new adult ADHD mental health clinic set up in Ireland. But as far as I know, it's still not very, um, up and running very easily functionable or accessible for a lot of people so I suppose in my journey um, I had never really considered that it really existed or was was true I, I think I had some judgments I did like I said earlier grew up in America and my mother had a crash a daycare in our home and I remember very very well in the 80s and 90s lots of little wild boys being medicated and over medicated it was overdone in that period of time and it was always little boys and girls were kind of, as we now know, girls and women manifest the same condition in many, many different ways than boys do. So um, it was a surprise to me when I was diagnosed in some ways. Actually, my son was diagnosed first. He was diagnosed late in his school year. He was 16 at the time. 
And looking back, I'm really surprised that teachers in schools didn't kind of help me um, highlight it a bit better. Still not enough education, especially here. There just really, really isn't. There was no support or awareness during his school years in our experience. But looking back, he absolutely struggled with so many things like, you know, I I told by my psychiatrist, and I believe this too, that ADHD and autism are on a similar spectrum. You know, maybe, and I think a lot of people I know and myself included have both diagnoses. And, and to me, it's like, okay, I've got a lot of ADHD and a little bit of autism. I can give loads of examples of my absolute weirdnesses that I always used to hide away. But now I kind of tell people what to like. So there's something about putting these things out into the open and not having the shame anymore of going, okay, the things that are the struggle about it for me, the parts of it that have been really impactful and hard in my life, I can now acknowledge the the flip side, the superpower parts about that. Mm. But, you know, I think it's becoming a little bit more recognized that maybe those, they sound very different, autism and ADHD, but there's some, there's a lot of commonality in the, in the spectrum. So whether it's considered the same spectrum or totally different ones, there's, there's a lot of overlap at play there. And so, um, my son was first diagnosed when he was 16. So it was quite late in his school years, but he at the time really wanted to take the medication which is Ritalin and I was so nervous I, I really really fought against that and I thought I was really preferred that in my in my personal journey that everything that could be healed in in myself with food and natural medicine and mushrooms and fermented foods I wanted that to be my medicine but Luca was old enough to decide for himself at 16 and he really really wanted to try the medication and when he did it blew us all away because he had so much support and it it impacted him in such a overall positive way mm. I just want to say one thing. A lot of people, I don't think they realize the impact of saying this sentence. It's really quite insulting or difficult, but I, I know that it's coming because there's just a lack of education. But when people say, Usher, but we're all a little bit autistic or we're all a little bit ADHD, I can understand the sentiment behind that because we all might share a lot of those qualities. We all have some of that. But the difference is the level to which it impacts your life and that's your family life your home life, your work life, um, and in, in within your relationships. And it, if it impacts your level in all those different areas to a degree that's really, if it's impactful in your life, that's a part of the big part of the diagnosis. So we can all be a bit procrastinating. We can all maybe have, have a lot of these hangups with these things that on paper, you know, people just go, oh, but sure, just, just do it. Like it's easy. If I could just do some things that, people say should be so easy like you know stupid shit post offices tax returns posting things applications oh my god those things I need help and assistance with I, I simply struggle to a degree that doesn't make sense on paper I can achieve big things I can do I can make big things happen but the level to which my personal relationships have suffered that it impacted my marriage for which I'm so regretful. I didn't have the language at the time. I didn't have the self-awareness for the ways in which the things I could do could come across so difficult for others. Like maybe that my impulsivity would make people feel that I hadn't regarded them or I don't know. I'm, I'm really regretful for the ways in which it's impacted me and caused a lot of pain to myself and, and those that love me before I had 
the language and the the lens through which to see the ways that I could be more mindful or get some more support or I mentioned earlier the shame the shame of feeling you know the the level of anxiety or the level of ways in which the, the comorbidities that exist with ADHD are often often anxiety and depression and all kinds of other things lots of addictions all kinds of ways that are really common things to have in the cocktail of ADHD mm. those things have had a huge impact on my heart my sense of well-being my relationships and it's been really hard but now to kind of have the support of medication I choose to take Ritalin myself after I saw the impact for my son I took me a long time to get my diagnosis in Ireland it wasn't easy but the first day and the first hour that I took it, I had so much support and the things that I thought were just the difficult things about Courtney that they couldn't be changed. And I'm not a drug pusher. <laughs> I still think <laughs> it's important to do all the other things you can do. But yeah. I, I've learned it's important not to be so black and white and not to just think it's one or the other, either or. It could be and and for me. It's mm -hmm. still important that I take my medicinal mushrooms and I eat my kimchi and I do my yoga and I do the things that give me a sense of balance and health and well-being. But for me, Ritalin has helped me in ways I never dreamed of. And I'm grateful for that because I kind of, I didn't believe it was a real thing. I thought it was a bit made up and rubbish. And I think it's important to break down some of these stigmas of anxiety, depression, ADHD, medication, all of those things if there's support and it helps us, then, you know, sometimes we need that. And it, I know that for all the healthy living I've done in my life, the level of stress that was in my heart and the level of fight and flight that I was kind of stuck in mm. was going to kill me a lot earlier than, than it is now if I'm able to get a better handle on those things. And, mm. and for me, as my journey, it's, it's involved taking that medication too. And it kind of blew me away that it could help me that much. But I do like to talk about it because I know a lot of people sometimes approach me after I've spoken about it and say they express their gratitude because they might have been diagnosed or someone they love was, and they might have too had all those same fears about what, what could help them. Mm -hmm. So if anyone would like to reach out to me, I'm happy to share, but I unfortunately don't have a a great clinic or psychiatrist to recommend it's it's quite a broken system and it's been really frustrating and difficult uh, to get the diagnosis and to get the kind of care that you need um i hope it improves but mm -hmm. but yeah i'm happy to share that if that's ever helpful for somebody yeah thank you so much um and it's so important that people feel at home on this earth and that they feel like they have a tribe and they have people that they can associate with and you know if we're going through things that we can find our people you know because geez like I've been called loads of di different things over the years and thank god I have support systems you know um, yeah. even just like oh you're so sensitive like the amount of times I've gotten that like yeah I'm like well I'm I'm normal <laughs> <laughs> or you're emotional or you're hormonal or you're know. you know all of those things it's not helpful and it's also degrading and you know it's it's not it's a beautiful thing to be sensitive although it's a double-edged sword isn't it you feel things mm -hmm. the good and the bad very deeply and I certainly do too it's it's not always easy having a heart that big that that is that soft 
but mm-hmm. there's also a lot of beauty in that too. So we just need to find ways to have our tribe. That is so important. And to be able to have these conversations that are a little bit uncomfortable, but support each other in these things. I think yeah. If you feel alone in it, it can be very, very lonely. And and those sense, those that shame that you might feel for things that are real struggles for you. For me, that was that was maybe the most damaging part. The things that, you know, my dark days or how many after peopling, after after being out and, and oh. you know, I've spent all my social batteries. They're down, they're down to zero now, like after a big event or being around at a wedding or being around lots of people. I need my time off. And sometimes the level to which that time off was shocking for me. I mean, I kind of unplug and I'm in a dark space and I, I don't interact and I shut down like in ways that that was really shameful for me. I always thought, God, what's mm. wrong with me? Why mm. why for me is that why am I doing that? But now I allow myself and with a bit of softness. And I think that mm. that softness and you know, um, we all need more of that for both ourselves and for the people we love. Yeah. And there's actually there's way more like media coverage on it now, because I was even reading recently about introvert hangover. Um and it's like yeah, I totally feel you. And I, I'm yeah. actually now, because I go into this kind of statistical side in my brain where I'm like, how long does it actually? Because I'm all like, I'm like the hive. I'm like efficiency. I'm like, how much time does it take me to recover from being at a market for five hours? I'm like, because I need all that evening and then I need the next day as well. I'm like, how mm-hmm. much time is that now? Do I need alone? <laughs> you know, I've been thinking because for the future, for work, I'm like, okay, because yeah. if I go to the yeah. city on the Monday, maybe I'll go back again the following week. You know, exactly. it's important to realize these things. Yeah, and <laughs> and it's just self-awareness. But I totally get you. That's how I am too. And and it's nice to know that at forty six, finally to know that now, at least <laughs> I can look forward to the rest of my many hopefully years ahead of me with a bit more understanding for that and a bit more softness. So yeah. Um, Thank you for the chats. It was really lovely to talk to you. Yeah, and thank you for sharing your vulnerability. I'm sure it'll actually help loads of people. And um, yeah, thank you for coming on today. Great, thank you. Well, we'll be in touch. Let me know if you're around Wicklow or I'd love to come to one of your events or workshops sometime or yeah. you did some lovely things around the fire, I think, as well. I just, yeah, I'd love to connect. So let's let's try and make that happen. Let's do it, Definitely. Um, thank you to all the listeners today. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, if you can leave a review, it really helped me. And patrons, thank you for supporting every month with my B mission. And I will talk to you all very soon. Long. <laughs>